invite you to take your Bibles with me, please, and open them to the book of Colossians, New Testament letter, chapter 1 this morning, verse 7 and verse 8. Colossians chapter 1, verse 7 and verse 8. Let me take a few moments to set some questions before you this morning that will not only serve as a framework, but will also be some things we're trying to answer with the text today. The first question being this, how do we know if our leaders within the church are actually godly leaders? And how do we know if they're approved and used by God? There's lots of different standards out there, lots of different definitions of church success or ministry success. But from the scriptures, how do we really know if those uh, who are set as our leaders in any given church are actually godly leaders? How do we know that they're instruments of righteousness in the hands of our Lord, serving his purpose and, and working out his agenda and being used for his, his kingdom? And better yet, not just our church leaders, but how do we know the answer to, to that question regarding ourselves? How do we know we're approved and useful workers in the kingdom of God? How do we know that God has set His seal of approval on us beyond just salvation through His Holy Spirit, but in our actions and in our deeds and in our serving of Him? How do we know God is using us in the work of His kingdom? Another way we might ask it is, what are the identifying marks of being a useful tool of God? Paul uses some different language in Romans chapter 6, verse 13. He says uh, and exhorts us to present our members as instruments for righteousness, to be used by God as instruments of righteousness. What makes us an instrument of righteousness? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul will encourage that young pastor at the end of his life to be a worker approved by God. How do we know we are a worker approved? Those are important questions to ask, not just for the life of the church and the leadership of any given church. And I hope you ask those questions as, frankly, they can be daunting and scary for a leader to, to face. I hope you're asking those questions, but I hope you ask them of yourself, too. What are the identifying marks and the identifying proofs within me that God uses me, that I'm a useful tool in His hand, that I'm actually a transformed worker and not just a Christian in name only or a deceived servant of Christ? We face a con contrasting picture here when we consider false teachers who think they are approved of God servants of God, working for the mission of God, but are seriously deceived. In the 1500s, John Calvin wrote this about the false teachers of his day. He said, For while all boast that they preach the gospel, yet at the same time there are many who are evil workers, through whose ignorance or ambition or greed the purity of the gospel is adulterated. Therefore, it is of great importance that faithful ministers should be distinguished from the less upright. Calvin's right, both in his time and in our time, 
it's important for us to distinguish faithful servants of God from the less faithful, from uh, the unfaithful of God. Paul even said something very similar in Philippians chapter 1 in the first century. There are those who preach the gospel with impure motives, out of jealousy and rivalry and poor ambition. It's not hard to paint a picture of corruption that seeps into the people of God and the church of God. We know what Calvin's talking about. We know what Paul's talking about. Those who think they are serving the agenda of God, but really they're serving themselves. Or those who would disguise their agenda by serving God, in reality serving themselves. It's never a surprise to us that our leaders are fallen or sinful, and it's not a surprise to us if we believe the gospel that we ourselves are sinful and fallen. The surprise is how far people will go in manipulating and distorting the truth of God for their own personal gain. That's the practice of every false teacher. And how do we know the difference between faithful people of God and false people of God? That's certainly the truth for the false teachers in Colossians, uh, the book of Colossians, who are threatening the church. They're morphing and twisting the truth uh, for their own desires, for their own personal gain, to elevate their own popularity. And Paul's addressing that in this letter. That's the whole reason he wrote it. He wants these Colossians to know the difference between right service of God and false service of God. A right message of God and a, and a false message of God. And that's where he begins to turn his attention today in Colossians chapter 1. Later in the 20th century, A.W. Tozer even addressed this same issue, writing in his book, The Pursuit of God. He says, promoting self under the guise of promoting Christ is currently so common as to excite little notice. It doesn't surprise people, in other words, is what he's saying. It doesn't surprise people when we find out that our leaders are promoting themselves under the guise of promoting Jesus. Often Jesus is used as little more than a pathway to fame and the pulpit is used as little more than a platform for popularity. And we have to be aware, just like the Colossian believers had to be aware, of those who are using the message of Christ and the work of Christ for personal gain instead of for the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom. So it's with that picture of corruption that's displayed in the first century and in the 1500s, in the 20th century, even in our day today. It's with that picture of corruption I ask the question again, how do we know the difference between good and godly leaders and false teachers? And how do we know within our own hearts that we are actually a transformed, useful worker of God, useful tool in the hands of God? So we come to verse 7, we encounter this character that we don't have a whole lot of information about. We've referenced him a few times. His name is Epaphras. He's referenced in verse 7 and 8 of Colossians chapter 1. He'll be referenced again at the end of Colossians in chapter 4 verse 12 where we see his kind of ministry and service to this church and, and to the apostle 
Paul. And then he'll be referenced again in the book of Philemon, verse 23, where he's described as a fellow prisoner with Paul for the gospel. We've identified before, but I'll remind you again, he's likely the planter of this church in Colossae. Uh, in, in verse 7, we'll highlight that the gospel comes to these believers by way of Epaphras. He's also likely the planter of the other churches in the Lycus Valley, the church in Laodicea, the church in Hierapolis. At the end of this letter in Colossians, we'll find there's a connection between those churches. The connection is the gospel and Jesus himself, but it also might be that they share the same planter, Epaphras. He apparently was converted by Paul in the city of Ephesus. Paul never came to Colossae. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that. He doesn't know this church personally. He hasn't met them yet. hasn't seen their face. They haven't seen his face. It's likely Epaphras went 120 miles east of Colossae to the city of Ephesus, a major port city, trade city, where Paul did spend some ample amount of time. And there in his preaching and prison ministry, he might have met Epaphras. And Epaphras would have been converted and discipled by Paul and sent back to Colossae. And upon coming back, we find that the man who left that city and encountered the gospel and has come back to this city is a transformed man. He's a man who now serves Christ. And Paul's reminding the Colossian believers of that. Last week we saw he's battling the false teaching that's threatening this church by reminding them in verse 5 and verse 6, of the sufficiency of the gospel. That it has come to you and done a work. It's going into the world and it's bearing fruit. And it's still bearing fruit to you, uh, in you to this very day. It's continuing its, its work. The gospel is sufficient. And now by verse 7 and 8, he turns his attention from the message of the gospel to the messenger of the gospel. And he highlights the man who brought it to them in the first place. Look at the man who actually preached the gospel to you. And contrast him with the false teachers who are threatening you today. There are two very different types of people. Like I said, Epaphras appears to be a man who has been totally transformed by God. Still a sinner, no doubt. But he has tasted of the glories of Christ. And the very heartbeat and purposes of his existence have radically changed. And what Paul has to say about him in verse 7 and 8 is really expected among every worker of God. People who have been transformed by the grace of Christ who now bear the marks of being a new creation serving the agenda of Jesus. That's what we come to consider this morning. The marks of a transformed servant. Look in verse 5. The second part of verse 5. We'll read down to our verses 7 and 8 this morning. <clears throat> Talking about the hope mentioned in verse 5. Paul writes, Of this hope you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. In our verse today, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. 
as we consider this man's life, I want to strike the balance with highlighting him as the character in the verse because he is that. But I don't want to neglect the fact that it's Christ who's brought about these changes in Epaphras. Jesus is the main subject of the verses. Epaphras is only the man that he is because he's really encountered Jesus in a real, honest, sincere way. But as Paul confirms this man and commends this man to the church, yet again, he highlights some things that are indications of a transformed spirit. The first thing that he highlights, we could call motivation. The motives of Epaphras represent the motives of a transformed, born-again child of God. We have to be honest with ourselves that even our best works, even our good works, and even our service to Christ are often tainted by impure motives. The best things that we accomplish, and, and we should be accomplishing good works, they're often corrupted because our motives are less than perfect. Because our very motives are sinful. The very reason for what we're doing is shrouded in darkness. The truth is, God does look at and God does care about the motives of your heart. God cares about the reason for why you're doing any given thing. Because, even though your motives might be hidden to the rest of the world around you, if you look very closely at your motives, they reveal quite clearly the condition of your heart, don't they? Your motives reveal the desires of your heart, and the pleasures of your heart, and the goals of your heart, and the treasures of your heart. God cares about our motives. The gospel tells us that the worker of God or the child of God, however you want to phrase that, must have motives that are submitted to and transformed by the love of Christ. In fact, that's what it means to be sanctified, isn't it? That our heart's desires, are, the motivation of our heart is continually being conformed to that of Jesus's. We're continually being brought under the control of the gospel. More and more made to submit. More and more reflecting the character and heart of God. That's what the new birth is all about. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I, I think it's verse 17, he writes about being a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. That's what he means. The very desires and intentions of our soul is being transformed. Not just our actions, not just our behavior, but the very depths of who we are, those deep secret places, our motives. In fact, in Colossians chapter 3, uh, he's going to begin addressing such things. Talking about the change that takes place as a result of knowing Jesus. Verse 5, put to death Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 8, he goes on to enhance that list and add several other things. Obscene talk from your mouth and, and so on and so forth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Why? Because you have put off the old self with its practices. And verse 10, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
What it means to be a Christian, what it means to be born again, is to come under the influence of Christ. And that influence extends even into the depths of your heart. Why do you do what you do? Are you doing good works? Are you coming to church? Are you, are you interacting with others throughout your week, throughout your day? For purely personal gain and selfish motivation? Is your heart coming under the transforming power and work of the gospel? Are your motives being purified? Are your desires being made holy? Those are the questions and those are the areas the gospel really begins to address. The very reasons for why we do any given thing that we do. Christians who are truly born again, not just Christian in name, but Christian in heart, born again by the grace of God, they must have lives that are increasingly controlled and informed by the gospel. And I use those two words very purposefully. Controlled because sometimes you just don't have an option. The gospel controls you. And informed because sometimes you need to make a decision and the gospel is what informs that decision. What do I do with my money? How do I respond to a fight with my spouse? How do I discipline my kids? How do I respond to conflict and disagreement within the church? How do I interact with my neighbor? How do I work in my job? How do I pay my taxes? The gospel informs all of those things. And as Christians, our motives for each and every one of those decisions and each and every one of those actions must be sanctified by Christ. Epaphras is apparently a man who has had his motives transformed. Again, he's not a perfect man, but the gospel is working in his life. The first indication I think we see of that concerns his love for Christ. If you look, Paul describes him in verse 7 as a minister of Christ. And I don't want to focus so much on the action or task of ministering so much as I want to focus right now on who he's a minister of. He's a minister of Jesus. His life is of the Lord. Which means his allegiance is to Christ first and foremost. Obedience to Jesus is his greatest commitment and his greatest devotion. He longs to spend his life for the Lord. Christ has become his all-consuming desire. Now the truth is, you can try to grit your teeth and put forth all the effort to be better devoted to Jesus and I promise you will fail. I promise that because I've been there. I've tried and tried in my own life to just be a better Christian. The answer is that if you want to have total and undivided devotion to Christ, you must first come to experience Him as your greatest treasure in all of the universe. A treasure that really is worth selling all your possessions to, to purchase. A treasure that's really worth liquidating all that you have, relinquishing everything that's in your life so that you might have Christ. If I have nothing else, I have the greatest treasure in Christ. The only way 
We're going to be a people motivated by the love of Christ with the love of Jesus being our chief reasoning for everything we do is to be a people who have truly known and tasted the glories of Jesus in the gospel and been transformed by it. The only reason your sin becomes lesser in your life is if Jesus becomes greater. And the only way that you become lesser in your life is if Jesus becomes greater. I believe it was D.A. Carson. Doug, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was him that said there are some sins we worship our way into and there are some sins we have to worship our way out of. Christ is the only thing that will replace and supplant our impure, selfish, evil motives. A supreme love for him is the heartbeat behind the Christian's actions. We love Christ. We're ministers of Christ. We're people of Christ. We're servants of Christ. So we worship Christ. We, we share the gospel for the glory of Christ. We do good works in the community and, and even engage in some social work in the community in the name of Christ because we are people of Christ. Our motives are built on that foundation. So instead of serving ourselves, we serve the Lord. Instead of living for ourselves, we live for the Lord. Instead of loving ourselves, we love the Lord. Instead of building our platform, our kingdom, our popularity, we care chiefly about the popularity and glory and kingdom and agenda of Jesus. So it's only in knowing the immense and often inexplicable joy of Christ, the, the true and real spiritual experiential love and care of Christ, it's only in tasting of those things that our hearts will truly be transformed. But if our hearts are truly transformed, that extends even deep down into the motives behind doing what you do. Ultimately, we will become people motivated now by the glory of God and the love of God, desiring to display those things to the world around us. You know how often we spend our times and get, get caught up in the temptation of making ourselves look good before others? I want to be seen as smart. I want to be liked. I want to be seen as caring, as funny, whatever it may be. When our motives begin to be changed by the gospel, those things begin to be changed by the gospel. We start to care about Christ being seen instead of us. The second thing that Paul mentions about Epaphras that I think is a motive for him. First, it's his love of Christ. And that must be first and must be foremost. But secondly, it's his love for people. He, again, we'll talk about later, but in verse 7, he's apparently the one who shares the gospel with this church. You learned it from Epaphras. He cared enough about these lost people in Colossae to persuade them, to wrestle with them, to discuss with them the truths of the gospel and call them to believe and repent. That's the ultimate picture of a love for people. Is if you're willing to wrestle the gospel with them. But also, he has a unique love for this church. In verse 8, again, we'll talk about this later as well. But in verse 8, he is making known to the apostle, Paul, the love that exists in this church. 
the love that they have for each other, the love that they have for other Christians. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It's a special divine kind of love. He wants the reputation of this church to be stellar. I want to report to the apostle the good things that are taking place in this church. I want them to be thought highly of. I want people to give thanks for this church, for these people. That's always the result of the love of Christ in our heart. A love for other people. John 13 and in, in, in 1 John 4, a special love for the brothers and sisters, but a love for all people nonetheless as, as people who are created in the image of God. We often spend our times, like I've said, focusing on our own needs and our own wants. But those who are transformed by the gospel all of a sudden find themselves caring for others as well. Sometimes even beyond caring for yourself. You might even be found to mirror Christ and laying down your life for somebody. Loving sacrificially. Loving wholeheartedly. Caring for the needs of one another. Again, because Christ has loved and cared for us. Well, not by surprise, those are the two greatest commandments, aren't they? A love for God and a love for one another. And those ought to be our motivating commandments. We're motivated out of a love for God and a love for other, others. That's what the gospel begins to work within us. It changes our selfish motives to motives that now serve and work for the glory of God and the good of others. But again, that's only if the gospel has really had its full effect on our hearts. You and I have a hard question to ask. Are those transforming proofs evident in our lives? Do we see in any shape, way, or form the gospel having an impact so deep as to transform our motives? Do you find yourself even convicted about your motives? For doing any given thing that you do. Do you find yourself being convicted for being selfish? Do you find yourself being convicted for morphing and twisting things for your own personal gain? Or do you find yourself increasingly concerned about love for Christ and a love for people? Those are good questions. Well, motives are a piece of the evidence of being a transformed child or worker of God. The other one is reputation. Your reputation will be transformed, should be transformed. The Bible actually, to the surprise of some people, the Bible actually does lend some credence to the importance of your reputation. Not enough for you to only be concerned about your reputation, but enough for us to be uh, in check, keep our reputations in check and in balance. Let me say it this way, it might be a little bit more piercing. Your reputation, or what you are known for in, in your circles, it either lends credibility to Christ, or it discredits Christ. Your personal reputation lends credibility to Christ, or it discredits Christ. 
Even more so, our reputation as a church does the exact same thing. Just one example comes from John 17. We looked at this this last Wednesday night in our Bible study. John 17, Jesus is praying. And He's praying for future disciples, future generations of disciples. He's praying for the unity of the church, essentially. And in that unity, there's a whole plethora of things to discuss, like love and, and understanding and things like that. In verse 21 of John 17, this is what Jesus prays to the Father. Praying for us, future generations. He says, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus says there, our unity and our love for one another, our reputation, either backs up His claims to being sent from the Father or discredits His claims. Christ makes a lot of claims of how we relate to one another. John, again, 13, verse 34 and 35, we're going to have a unique and special love for one another, He says. Our reputation of how we care for one another, how we love one another, it either lends credibility to Christ or it discredits Christ. Back to us as individuals, our reputation does the same thing. Your reputation either honors or glorifies Jesus or it dishonors Jesus. Your reputation either makes the gospel believable, credible, worth listening to, or it puts up an obstacle for the gospel's proclamation. The way you conduct yourself at work determines how easy it will be for you to share the gospel with an unbeliever there. If your kids only see hypocritical attitudes and behaviors, you discredit the gospel and put up an obstacle to proclaiming it into their lives. And that extends to every corner of our lives. Your reputation matters enough for us to not neglect them. Epaphras apparently has a reputation that Paul wants to bring out. First highlighting in verse 7 that he is faithful. He's a faithful minister of Christ. I think we can break that down in two ways. First and foremost, he's faithful to his Lord. Yet again, we see Jesus is supreme in his life. His allegiance is to Christ above all things. He's tasked with committing himself to his Lord. Jesus is the chief concern of his life. So those things that often occupied his heart before conversion are now replaced with a desire to honor the Lord. He's also faithful in his calling. That's what Paul specifies there. He's faithful, but he's faithful as a minister as well. He acts on behalf of Christ and He's faithful in doing it. He's faithful to His calling. Faithful to His task. Faithful to His mission. This goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning. Faithfulness in our calling is an unfortunate rarity today. Are you faithful to the callings God has placed on your life? 
Because every one of us have a call from God to be gospel ambassadors in this world. You have a calling as a parent or you have a calling to the place that you work. You have a calling to the family that you exist in. You have a calling in the relationships that you have with your friends. You have a calling in the neighborhood that you live in. And we're all called to be missionaries in those places. To point people to the glories of Jesus and to share the only message of life to the dead world around us. That's our calling. Evangelism and discipleship and service to others so that Christ might be glorified. Are you and I faithful to those callings? You know why faithfulness is a transforming mark of our reputation? Because God is faithful to us. Faithfulness is a chief attribute of God. And the more we're transformed into the likeness of God, the more we will exemplify faithfulness, specifically to Christ and also to our calling from Christ. Are you faithful? Secondly, Epaphras has been identified as a servant in verse 7. A beloved fellow servant. And Paul uses that word fellow or companion. He's declaring Epaphras to be similar in standing with himself. He's not an apostle, but he is one who serves the church. He's one, as we've identified, is imprisoned for the gospel. He's one who, like Paul, desires Christ's glory above his own glory. He's a fellow servant. The word servant there, your Bible may or may not have a footnote at the bottom indicating this. But that word could also be translated a little bit more bluntly to be slave. He's a fellow slave of Christ. A slave means, again, that his allegiance is to Jesus. His desire is for Jesus. His goal is the glory of Jesus. And in all of his works, he's building up the net worth of Christ and not himself. So he no longer lives for his own outcome, his own platform, his own identity, but only for the Lord. That is an apt way of describing discipleship. Being a slave of Christ. A servant to the highest degree. Where your life becomes all about His. And your identity becomes wrapped up in Him. And when people look at you, they no longer see you. They see a servant of Christ. That's our calling. That's what the gospel does. It begins to give us such joy and delight in Christ that we willingly submit ourselves to Him as our Master. And we say with complete joy, I decrease, He increases. So if I am only known as a slave of Christ, then I have a better reputation than I've ever had before. We have the great and awesome privilege now of belonging to the Lord Jesus. And our relation to Him is what defines us. Would people look at you and say, by the observable actions and intents of your heart, that you're faithful to Christ, that you're a servant of Christ? The gospel makes us those things. 
Finally, I'm trying to cover it all this morning. The third thing that is transformed in Epaphras' life and would be in ours would be our actions or our, our works. We often act out of self-interest, using money for personal gain or relationships for personal gain, even using church for personal gain. But the gospel begins to change all of that. As it changes our motives, it changes our actions. Our actions change our reputation. So Epaphras is apparently a man who confirms the inner workings of God upon his heart by his outward actions in his life. He's first and foremost in verse 7 identified as an evangelist. He's the one who brought the gospel to these people. That's the primary calling upon all of us and the primary work of the gospel upon our actions, our lives. If the gospel makes us anything in this life, in this world, it makes us gospel-proclaiming people. When the love of Christ enters into your heart, the Bible is clear, you will begin to have a desire for others to know the same saving message that you've known. When you truly taste and experience the grace of God, the pardon of your guilt, the forgiveness of your sins, the reconciliation to the Father, you are given a desire and an increasing desire at that for others to know the same thing. We become evangelists. I've been quoting it, but let me just flip over there and read it. It'll be better. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In conjunction with being a new creation, Paul says this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you. We beg you. We plead with you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. What is a fruit of you being a born again new creation in Christ? You no longer live for yourself. You're now an ambassador on behalf of God sharing the only message of reconciliation, the only message of life, the only message of salvation. You become an evangelist. It's not just a change in title. It's change in desire. Back to our motives being transformed. We're now motivated by love for Christ and a love for people that manifests itself in the action and work of evangelism. Of proclaiming the gospel. We have so tasted and drunk so deeply of the mercies of our Savior that we truly desire others to experience the same exact thing. Church, the gospel is always sufficient. And as people who have been transformed by it, we know that not only in our minds, that we prove that even with our actions. 
The second thing here that pertains to Epaphras' acts or works is he's an evangelist and he is a reporter. And that sounds kind of boring, doesn't it? But verse 8, he's a reporter in the highest degree. He's made known to this apostle the love of this church. No doubt their love for one another. No doubt their love for the apostles. No doubt their love for other brothers and sisters, some whom they've never even met. If you back up into verse 4, that's what we highlighted. Paul says, I'm thankful to God for the love that you have. For who? All the saints. Those known and those unknown. Those seen and unseen. Those met and those you haven't met. He comes down to verse 8 and he says, I've learned that great and glorious news that I praise God for through this faithful brother, Epaphras. And he's not, by the way, boasting of you. What is he reporting? The good work of God among you. He's sharing God's continued sanctifying grace in your life. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul there says and highlights, it's good to know that the grace of God extends to more and more people so that you might be thankful, and in being thankful, God would be glorified. That's exactly what Epaphras is doing here. He shares the gospel, and then he reports the results. Why? So that God might be glorified. As we read in Psalm chapter 9 this morning, do you tell regularly of the wonderful works of the Lord? Do you boast on the good works of Christ that you witness in your children, that you witness in your friends, that you witness in the church? Do you highlight them and say, praise God He's at work among us? Do you tell of the good news of God's grace in somebody else's life? But that's apparently what is praiseworthy in Epaphras in the eyes of the Apostle Paul. He is so consumed with the glory of God going forth and sounding forth in this world that not only does he share the gospel with unbelievers, he reports to the church the good works of God wherever he sees them. He's told us of your love in the Spirit. He's told us how God has worked love into your soul so that you, you are people with a mark of faith and a mark of love. characteristics of being born again. I think Paul in these two verses has highlighted Epaphras' motives. I think he's addressed his reputation. I think he's addressed his works. But none of those things can be praiseworthy in him. None of those things can be exemplary in him if he hasn't first come under the wonderful influence of Jesus. The gospel is powerful enough. It does touch the very depths of our souls and it affects every corner of our lives. It changes our motives. It reshapes what we're known for, our reputation. It changes how we conduct ourselves in this life with our actions and our works. What we give ourselves to and what we spend ourselves to. The question is, has that kind of transforming power affected us? 
have our lives been so comprehensively influenced by the gospel? Have we really submitted ourselves to Jesus in such a way that our whole lives would actually be influenced by Him? What's the difference between false teachers and faithful ministers like Epaphras? It's having a complete overhaul of your life by the grace of Christ. Not just in word, but in deed. Not just in action, but in the very depths of your soul. What's the, what's the, the fruit or the evidence that you have been transformed, that you're a worker approved by God, useful in His hands, that the gospel is that the gospel has so comprehensively affected your whole life. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But the grace of God does reach and touch every area. It is making us perfect. It's convicting of fault. It's transforming into Christ-likeness, making us more Godly. Have you experienced such transforming work and power? Are your motives, have your motives, the depths, the reasons, the desires of your heart come under the control of Christ? Is your reputation, what, what others see of you, lending credibility to the transforming grace of Jesus or not? Can you be identified? Is the first thought that people think of you uh, being that of a servant of Jesus? Are your actions reflecting a heart that belongs to God? Reporting for His glory and sharing the gospel for the salvation of the lost. Christianity is not, the Bible doesn't allow it to be. It's not just this in name only, title only sort of faith. Those who are truly converted will find that God doesn't allow Himself to be compartmentalized in your life. Those truly converted will find that God invades every area of your life. Often in interrupts every area of your life. Interjects Himself often where He's not originally wanted. But He does that for our good. Has God invaded your life? And transformed you in such deep and serious and honest and real ways. Father, we, we praise you that your word highlights occasionally these characters that we can glean some good things from. But they're not the goal or the subject. It's you. Epaphras is only the man that he is. Not because the Apostle Paul, but because you touched his heart and his life. He only takes the gospel to this church. He only reports uh, of the love of this church. He's only faithful as a minister to you. And, he, and he's only a fellow servant of, of Paul. He only loves you and loves people because you have entered into his life and transformed him. And the only way we're going to do any of those things, the only way we're going to be evangelistic, the only way that we're going, to, we're going to uphold you as our highest delight and our highest priority, the only way we're going to be faithful and, and servants of you is if we have tasted of you, if we've encountered you, if, if you've invaded our hearts. And I pray and plead with you that you will. We don't need more knowledge. 
more, more lofty language. Lord, we need you to invade our lives. To conquer every corner. To transform every nook and every cranny. To push the gospel deep, deep down within us. So that we are known for something different than ourselves and our own abilities and our own skills. We're, we're known for our relationship to you. So that our very desires would be formed by our love for you. So that our actions would reflect a life that's been radically redeemed. Oh God, work this way in our hearts for only you can do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.